right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time for that. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com. We got some new shirts in the building, some Crush Mizzou shirts. So, if you're wanting to uh, get decked out for the KU Missouri game, all you got to do go to at RCST thirteen twenty on Twitter and you just reply to the tweet. Make sure you're following, and you can win um, a Crush Mizzou shirt. So we're gonna be do it, do it quick because we got we got a lot of them, but we have a hundred of them. Yeah, but so make sure you do. Yeah, we get, we we have some, but do it quick. Well, so what you have to do is you have to reply with your score prediction for the KU St. John's game on Friday. Ah, okay. Um, I think I said on there the top three predictions will win. We may end up amending that. I might do like top 20 win. I don't know. We'll wait and see. But then we'll do another score prediction for the uh, UTEP game before the Missouri game as well. And then we're going to give away some. I I don't know if we're sending anybody out to the Missouri game that's just going to give them away or what. But um, you'll have opportunities to get free t-shirts. So you can go check that out. Uh, We also have new RCST trivia t-shirts that are really cool. But we'll unveil those later on the spring. We have a packed show today. Ray Bouchard, the head coach of the Kansas volleyball team, is going to be on the show at 4.05. Matt Tate typically joins us on Tuesdays. It'll be like 3.35 with Matt, and then Kevin Flaherty will join us at 4.40. But I want to start off the show. Uh, We talked about this a little yesterday. We kind of dove, you know, dipped our our feet into the pool of KU in the past has had some of these, I I don't know what you would call them, uh, whether in some ways, maybe a bad non-con loss. In other turd ways, losses. yeah, a turd loss, a weird loss, right? Different ways of defining these. And this hasn't been the first time in, in referring to the KU-Dayton game. Now, by the end of the season, Dayton could end up being a team who wins the Atlantic 10, which is a good conference, right? You have St. Bonaventure, who's a top 25 team. You typically have teams who uh, will work their way uh, every so often into a five seed, or for the most part, you know, you'll see teams who are the 10 through 12 seed in uh, from the Atlantic 10, right? It's a, it's a good conference. And they could end up being one of the best teams in that. And so we could look up at the end of the year and say, oh, Dayton's going to be an 11 seed in the tournament. Like, that loss is not that bad. But right now, their team, who just lost uh, the week before the tournament to uh, three teams who are outside the Ken Palm top 200. And even if Dayton is a you know solid team at the end of the year, it's still going to be a weird loss given how it happened, given the fact that you still, even if Dayton is a good team at the end of the year, are predicting Kansas to win that game, especially when they're up 15 at one point when they were up 10 at halftime. So here are some of their other losses in years past that would be classified kind of in the same way that they still went on to have good seasons. Now, they have other losses in there, too, where maybe they didn't have as great of a season. Um, I think it was 2006 when they lost to both Nevada and... That was the 05 It was 05-06. I, I don't remember they, the other they team. They lost, so... Um, Richmond, Richmond. Oh, no, that was 4 5 No, okay. that was 3 4 That was self first No, year. just kidding. I, I That is 4 Yeah, they had a good year there in the Elite Eight. But there's the another Elite year they lost to Nevada. 05 uh, 6 they lost to mm-hmm. Nevada. Um, that was the same year. Their their other losses included um, they went to Maui. They lost to Arizona, who was actually a decent team. 
But then they lost to Arkansas in their next game in Maui. They destroyed Chaminade. And then Nevada, that team didn't go far in the tournament. However, it still is worth noting that team you could count as having a good season because that was the team that started Big 12 play uh, one and two. They had a win at Colorado, but then you want to talk about a weird loss. That was back before K-State kind of got going as a basketball program. They beat KU and Allen Fieldhouse. Um, and that team was the one that they wound up winning like 15 of the last 17 games. They didn't go far in the tournament. They lost to Bradley. But another example, I mean, th- th- that was a weird loss against Nevada, but they still um, they didn't go far in the tournament, but still turned it around and were a ranked team by the end of the year. Yeah, how about that? Two losses in three years to Nevada. <laughs> just kind of weird. So uh, I just went back through like the Ken Palm era, which would be 2002 and later, which is fine. Like We don't need to go back much further than that. That's a 20-year sample. Uh, KU, obviously, in 2002, we mentioned this one yesterday, lost to Ball State. That was the season opener. That was in the Maui Invitational. Well, that team turned out to be okay. They went to the Final Four, and they lost to the team who won the National Championship in the Final Four. In the year that decided, made the NCAA said, we need to seed the one seeds. Can you imagine Twitter being around for that game? It's literally the season opener for KU. Oh, yeah. And you lose to Ball and, State. And they're returning. That, that KU team was a four seed that went to the Sweet 16 the year before. Bringing back, the uh, Eric Chenoweth was a senior, so he left, but he wasn't a big contributor. So they're bringing back basically every major contributor from a four seed that went to the Sweet 16. Yeah, you have, what, they junior start, year Kirk Heinrich, yeah, junior they, year Nick Collison, junior year Drew Gooden. They, they're top five team preseason, and then they start the year. in Roy, A Roy Williams system that is noted for scoring a heap of points loses to Ball State in a game that nobody even scores 70. <laughs> the people would have lost their mind. Yeah, Roy and it Williams, was in the Maui Invitational. It was like a it was a high profile game. The, the Maui Invitational. Well, the beauty of the Roy Williams system is that you get more possessions in a game, and you would think that with more possessions, the better team it'll it'll weigh itself out. And I do think there is something to the fact that Roy Williams, until this his final season, uh, this past year had never lost in the first round before. I, I think there's something to that, but you lose the ball state. It was just weird. But again, that ended up being a good team. They, they did also. They were also losing at halftime to Holy Cross, their 16th seed. That yeah, I don't, I don't know. Something weird. weird. But the point is, weird things happen. Mm-hmm. But that to the point we're making, yes, weird things happen, but that team rebounded and had a great season. 2004, KU lost to Nevada and Richmond. Now, again, this one's weird because Nevada actually ended up that year. Like, I... I you can't consider that a bad loss. You just consider it a weird loss. Nevada went to the Sweet 16 that year. They ended up 20th in Ken Palm. And had they beaten Georgia Tech in the Sweet 16, they would have played a rematch against KU in the Elite Eight. And then Richmond was an 11 seed that year. So, again, not like a bad loss, just kind of a weird one. But still, if you said at the end of the year, yeah, KU lost to Nevada and Richmond, you'd be like, what? And Richmond, I don't know where the Nevada – I think the Nevada one was either in, at, either at Reno or um, – it was a very, at the very least a neutral game, um, but that Richmond game was an Allen Fieldhouse, and that was was like sixty four sixty three or something um, that Richmond lost. But that yeah, that was a home game of all. I mean, that was a really bad loss. Yeah, in two thousand four, the Nevada loss was on the road. Is in Reno like seventy five sixty one too. You lost by fourteen. Invitational or something. I think it was a, a tournament of theirs. Anyway, they played the day before, so probably um, the Richmond one was at home sixty nine sixty eight. Was the score? It, it was a weird non-con game that was in the middle of conference play. It, it was like, so like imagine instead of the Big Twelve SEC showdown, it's just like no, we're just going to play Richmond. Self, if I remember that right, self scheduled that game after the season started, like two weeks or three weeks before that game even was played. 
So they're like they're coming to the end of their non-con and self wants another non-con. So he sets that one up mid-season, and it obviously didn't work out too well. Yeah, for I'm him, not sure he appreciated. Unless yeah. unless the whole point of it was to show his team that they're vulnerable. I, in I which guess case it worked well. I think after this past year when they added the late UTEP game, and then if if that was a mid-season schedule, I bet you Bill Self will never schedule somebody in season again after almost yeah. losing UTEP this year. Uh, so anyways, oh four they went to the Elite Eight. 2007 they lost to Oral Roberts and they lost to DePaul. In 2000, the Oral Roberts oh, game I was forgot the second about, game. I forgot about DePaul. Yeah, so the Oral Roberts ended up 88th in Ken Palm that year. They lost 78-71. DePaul, that was a road game. It would be kind of similar to losing at St. John's this year, right? It's to a team who, you know, they're fine. DePaul was 50th in Ken Palm that year. That's about what St. John's is. He lost kind of a stinker 64-57 on the road in a game between a Big 12 team and a Big East opponent. Um, DePaul ended up making the NIT that year, so they were fine, but they weren't great, and that KU team made the Elite Eight. And sandwiched in between, uh, they, that team not only made the Elite Eight, they went 14-2 and in conference play. Um, and uh, they was, oh, that that those two losses, sandwiched in between those two losses, was a, a victory, oddly enough, against mm-hmm. Ball State in Las Vegas, yes. and also a victory over number one Florida in overtime. So it was kind of a... That team really had highs and lows to start the season. You start losing at home to Oral Roberts. Holy moly, what's going on? And then you beat um, a Florida team that brings back everybody from a national title thinking going undefeated. Beat them in overtime. So that's what we need to figure out. KU is going to beat some version of Florida this year based on this. Um, uh, By the way, if you're listening, keep notes because this is probably going to all be prevalent information for RCST trivia later. Uh, 2009. KU lost to UMass, and that was not a good UMass team. This is probably, I don't know, one of the worst losses of the non-con era under Bill Self. Uh, UMass ended up that year 138th in Ken Palm. You lost 61-60. It was a game at the Sprint yeah, Center, Yeah, that was, that was the, the second year of the Sprint Center's existence. The first kind of big, the first big sports kickoff of the, of the Sprint Center was the 2008 Big 12 tournament, which would have been that spring before. Um, and so it was KU's fourth game in the in the Sprint Center, and that kind of began this series of gross games in in the Sprint Center that KU, for whatever reason, ran into. The curse of UMass, yeah. Again, twelve and eighteen, but a KU team, as the other ones did, shook it off, and they made the Sweet Sixteen that year, and very easily could have made the Elite Eight if not for losing that second half lead uh, against Michigan State. Twenty twelve. Again, the team that made it to the national title game. Everybody remembers this one. I, I think a lot of people, though, when you, you know, maybe if they're a little younger, maybe my age or younger, if you said, yeah, uh, Kansas lost, lost to Davidson a decade ago, they're like, oh, Steph Curry. And it's like, no, it wasn't uh, that Davidson gone. team. Yeah, he was he was gone for a couple of years by then. Um, that Davidson team ended up getting a 13 seed in the NCAA tournament. So, again, you know, fine team. But KU lost 80 to 74 to them. You're not expecting that to happen and again, a sprint center game. I remember that game and KU was never at no point did did I like they never got far enough down where you thought, okay, it's over. But just one of the way that team the game was going, you you just thought there's it's just it's gonna be one of those nights. And look, it, and it was at the sprint center, and I'm sorry, I don't care what people say. Unless KU is playing K State, Iowa State, or Missouri. That's a home game for KU. If, if, unless it's one of those three teams, the Sprint Center is a home game for KU. I like how Ken Palm does it. They count it as a semi-home game. They have neutral, semi-home, semi-away, home, road. So it just kind of goes between the gray area there. Um, so, again, 
they were okay. They made the national title game. 2017, I don't even know if you'd count this one. I just did for purposes here. Uh, KU lost to Indiana in the season opener, which ended up being a far cry of how good that team was going to be. There's some weird foul situations mm-hmm. in that game. Tyler Self had to come in in overtime. That Indiana team ended up going 18-16, and 16, right? So not a very good team. Just kind of a weird loss for what ended up being a team that made the Elite Eight. So again, you're going far. Uh, 2018 made the Final Four that year. You had that weird non-con loss again, the common denominator in a lot of these of the recent ones. Uh, Sprint Center, they lost to Washington, 74-65, to couldn't operate that zone. They had another loss the next game against Arizona State at home um, against Remy Martin, but that team ended up making the NCAA tournament. The Washington loss was really weird. The Washington wasn't, Washington made the NIT as a five seed. And again, that 2018 team made the Final Four. The other thing about that that Washington loss that I remember is everyone Coming into the game, a couple weeks prior to that, KU played Syracuse in some weird event in Miami. And everyone was thinking, how's this KU team going to handle the zone? And they really, I, it, they didn't blow Syracuse out. but Beat they, them by 16. Yeah, they handled that game, the pillar to post. It was never in doubt. Um, and so everyone was going into the Washington game kind of a little more comfortable thinking, hey, you know, this is another zone team with probably less talent than Syracuse. And then we saw what happened. So, so it was a weird game. Odd little deal. And then they, they wound up having, that was one of the random years where Mike Krzyzewski decided to play zone, and um, they beat Duke in the Elite Eight. Do you know there were two players that had double digits in that game for KU against Washington? One was Udoka. The he other had one had points. to have been LeGerald Vick. That's right. He had he was 28 our, he was, points. He was our guy from the uh, elbow yeah. against the zone all year. LeGerald Vick took 21 shots from two in that game. The rest of the team combined took 21 shots. I they would just, bet. I would bet 15 of those were from the, the elbow. Yeah, that that was their strategy. So anyway, uh, the point is here, and even if you wanted to add in, like, I know it was, uh, I was just looking at non-con losses, TCU. like the 2013 to TCU. And, and um, uh, to add to that, the, the 2017 team where Frank Mason was player of the year, now, now Josh Jackson was sitting that game for suspension, but they lost to... TCU in the quarterfinal yes. of the Big Twelve tournament. Although that team was a little better, they ended up making the NCAA. Yeah, tournament. they yeah they weren't they weren't awful. They weren't they weren't the. I think that was TCU. I think TCU went two and sixteen that year in conference. The year the first in year they were in the Big Twelve. Yeah, so there, there's other losses in there. But the point is here, there are so many examples to choose from. This isn't just me cherry picking one season where it happened and comparing it saying, well, maybe that's your hope. This is me saying this happens a lot more than you'd think. And we could pick a lot of other teams mm-hmm. where this happens too. Last night, um, yeah. Gonzaga was almost was got purple sputter- poo. Exactly. Was sputtering against the purple poo of Tarleton state. Yeah. For the record, if you want to go back to the podcast from before KU played Tarleton state, we're not making that up. That's actually a, a club <laughs> at Tarleton state. But uh, we were talking off the air, Derek, how often is it we as fans, when a loss like this happens, or even if it's a close game that is not supposed to be close, happens to to your program, to our us, to our program, we're fans of KU. It happens to KU, and we go, "Oh my gosh, what's wrong with KU?" Whereas we're sitting here and had Kentucky or Gonzaga or Duke lost to Dayton, we wouldn't be going, "What's wrong with them?" We'd go, "Oh, that's a weird loss, but it happens. It's only November." So. And all of us are guilty of that as fans, so I would just say in general, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody, you know, it's 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 notable. It's it's a mark. It's a it's a it's a loss, and it's a loss in which they blew a big lead, and it was a loss against a team they should have beaten by probably twenty. But 
it's it's worth noting, but it's not. Um, you know, I think that the comparison you made yesterday, Derek, it's not time to pull the fire alarm. No, absolutely not. So uh, if they lose to St. John's, like I said, then maybe it becomes a little more trending that way. Still not that way. But I think more than anything, we're probably just going to look back on that and just be like, well, that was weird. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World joins us in about 15 minutes. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. That time on a Tuesday, we talked to Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, kusports.com. Here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, Derek Johnson with Adam Dravetta. Uh, Matt, the Lance Leipold year one is in the books. How would you grade the first season of the Lance Leipold era? Are we talking letter grades or what? Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, did you ever take any pass-fail classes in college? Do you want to go pass-fail or do you want to go letter grades? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's I mean, if we're going pass-fail, I would give it a pass. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody's expectations – were or should have been much higher than than this. So, um, you know, based on on that sort of context, you have to say that it was it was uh, a passing grade in terms of letter grades. I don't know, maybe C plus. I, I I mean, I was floating around in the B range, but I I think that you know I I think frankly I think Lance would would be one of the first ones to say, you can't give us a B for this year, not even a B minus, you know, well, what I mean, if you it, graded against the curve? Oh, now you're just making my head hurt. <laughs> what if it was a um, bell curve? <laughs> I'm going to say it was a good year. Let's call it that yeah. I, a good first year. And, and, and I think, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody is, is shocked by or doesn't think themselves, uh, you know, the, the, the grade is, based largely on the idea that they finished in a, in a pretty favorable manner. I mean, you know, they didn't win any of those games down the stretch other than Texas, of course, but, but just being competitive and following that victory up with a couple of pretty impressive efforts, one of them being on the road, you know, and, and, and kind of using that momentum to head into the off season, feeling like maybe we have something here. You know, I, I think that in and of itself is reason enough to believe that that this is a passing grade because it's been a long time since people, anyone associated with the program, fans, whatever, have been able to honestly say at the end of the season, yeah, maybe we have something here. This feels good. Um, There's been some hope. There's been some false hope. There's been some people, you know, not necessarily willing to face reality and, and sort of, you know, hiding behind that hope. But I think that for the first time in a long time, this, this seems legitimate. This seems like there is actually a foundation and something that can be built upon. And, and, you know, they've got to do it. They've got a lot of hard work ahead and it's not going to get any easier and they're not going to get any, you know, passes from here. I mean, at this point, the foundation is set. And people expect you to be competitive because you've shown you can be. So it only gets harder from here. But I think 
any first year really for any coach at any program, but especially here in Kansas, you know, it's so important to, to, to build something of substance and to create uh, an identity and a culture that, that, that people can get behind. And, and I think that clearly happened here in this first year. I mean, those guys deserve a ton of credit, the coaches, the players, everybody involved, they deserve a ton of credit because so, so many times throughout this season, it would have been really easy to just say, God, this is trash. I mean, here we go again. You know, I mean, this, I don't want to be a part of this. This isn't fun. I don't like losing like this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they didn't, man. They flushed it every week. They rallied every week. They refocused, and, and they showed up and gave their best effort. And, and, you know, sometimes when you're talking about playing a team like Oklahoma State, who's fighting for a spot in the college football playoff, even your best effort's not going to be anywhere near good enough. But when you start talking about the TCUs and the Texases and, and obviously West Virginia, um, you know, your best effort gets you competitive. And, and for, for how long have people been asking, all we want is them to be competitive? Well, they were toward the end of the season, and, and uh, that's a lot of momentum that they can ride into next year. Matt, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I get the sense, and I feel this way, and I get the sense that other fans and, and media members feel this way too, um, so this year, you know, two and ten, you had one win against an FCS opponent, a win at, at, on the road against a Power Five, which is exactly how Les Miles' first year went. Going all the way back to Turner Gill's first year, you had three wins, one of which was a Big Twelve win, um, and and another win that excuse me that came against a um, a Power Five program in Georgia Tech. For some reason, it, this feels more hopeful. This feels better than the end of the either of those two years, which were both instances of, of a new coach. Um, is is there just are we all kind of by like I don't want to get too committed to to uh, optimism here, but it, it feels different. Can you put a finger on why? Yeah, I, I think I, I think it does. I think you're right, and and I think that the biggest reason that I could sort of point to is that you know some of those moments in in those those seasons that you just talked about seemed a little fluky same thing in in the last year uh or sorry second to last year for david Beatty. um you know it's it, the, the things the good things few and far between as they were the good things that were happening to this program seemed to be more often about well the other team screwed up or the other team didn't show up or the other team you know, lay down or the other, or that was a fluky win or whatever. Right. And, and, and I think with this group, it seems like, again, they're two and 10, so we can't act like they're, they're the greatest team in the history of, of the world. I mean, this, this is still a two and 10 football team, but the positive things that they, that they were able to kind of grab onto and, and produce, I think had a lot to do with what KU did and, and the way they played and, and who they were as opposed to any shortcomings or, or anything that had anything to do with the, the other team. I mean, obviously that's always the case in every game, you know, but, but it seemed like KU was able to kind of use that, that new philosophy, that Lance Leipold way of doing things, and, and find a way to make that work for them. And, and, you know, they were physical, they were disciplined, they, um, you, you know, they didn't lay down, they didn't quit, they kept fighting to the end of every game. And, and oftentimes those things, especially when you upgrade the talent, those are going to lead to good things and good outcomes. And so to me, that's, that's been the biggest difference. I think that this is a group that 
the coaches really got that buy-in and, and really convinced these guys that, hey, you just do it the way we say to do it and good things are going to happen. And, and uh, yeah, baby steps. And this was a, this was a season of, of very, very, very small good things. But uh, good things are good things, no matter how you look at them. And, and, and I think that that's a big part of this. I mean, they, it actually seemed like what they were doing, what they were trying to execute, how they were moving forward and, and game planning and operating and, and doing all that every week, it seemed like that mattered in the outcome. And, and so I think there's, there, there is, some hope that comes with that, but I also think that more than anything, it's just sort of validation to these players who have to buy into that. Now they see, well, this can be a positive thing, so let's keep riding it. So I, I think that's the biggest difference to me. What do you think realistic expectations are, whether it's it's on field or, or off the field, for what you're looking for out of the program then in year two? Um, tough question because I just think there's going to be a lot of movement. I think, you know, we already saw that with a couple of coaches coming and going, um, this week already. And, and I think you're, you're going to see them upgrade the roster in a lot of different ways. Obviously they'll have some, some freshmen coming in, but I think they'll look for transfers. I think they'll hit the portal portal. I think they will not be afraid of the Juco thing. I mean, one of the best things that I heard Lance say all year was that, that he wasn't going to be scared by the stigma. Um, it, going the Juco route here has been a, uh, a a failure, for one, but it's also been exactly what he said, a stigma of, you know, you can't do that. You, you can't do that. Well, programs all across the country do it all the time. So you just have to do it right if you're going to do it. And so I thought that was pretty interesting. That was two or three weeks ago that he said that. And, and you know, that, that shows conviction. That shows, um, you know, confidence in himself. Um, that shows that his bottom line and, and his ultimate goal is, I don't give a damn what people say about it or what was done in the past or what it led to before or what people think of it or anything. I am here to produce and put together the best, roster that I possibly can. If that means I go add six Juco guys that start for me next year, that's what I'm going to do because that's what we need. We need positive movement. We need momentum. We need talent upgrades, all of that stuff. And so I thought that was a really, a really good thing. I don't think he's going to go out and mortgage the future by doing the Juco thing like we've seen, but I don't think he should be scared of adding two or three Juco guys if they can help the team immediately. And especially if it's for, you know, two years or three years, even that, that, that can happen too. So um, if I danced around that question good enough, then I'll, I'll try to come back to it now. But I, I think that the expectation for year two um, probably is it, 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 it has to be, I mean, again, there's so many unknowns. I don't know that, that you can, you can look at the, the schedule or anything crazy like that and say, hey, this is how many wins they're going to have or should have or anything like that. But but I do think the expectation has to be probably to pick up where they left off. If, if that's, if that's the, the, the baseline of what they're able to accomplish next year, if they are able to show up in week one of 2022 and be as competitive and be as disciplined and be as solid as they were. And I mean, we're talking about the O-line. We're talking about penalties. I mean, this team made major strides throughout the season and had legitimate things to be proud of. And, and, uh, and that's two of them. I mean, not giving up sacks and, and not committing penalties. That'll get you a long way. So 
Uh, it took some time to get there, but I think that that's a big part of the equation. And so I think the minimum expectation has to be that they remember where they finished these last two or three weeks, and they start there next year. And and if they do that, if they, you know, if if you put a team that's capable of beating Texas and playing with TCU and playing with West Virginia, if you put that team on the field week one of any given season you're going to probably win most, if not all, of your non-conference games. And then things can change from there pretty quickly. So that's got to be the expectation. I don't think anybody needs to say bowl game is coming or or anything crazy like that. I think that's still down the road. But um, if that's your expectation, I think, number one, it's realistic. Number two, it's attainable. And and number three, then there's just no telling where it can can take you. But uh, you have to start there. And if you do start there, I think the idea of moving your win total forward, whether that's to three wins or four wins or whatever it is, I, I think that almost comes naturally if if you're able to to reach that expectation of starting where you finished. But they should they should be a much better team. Um, they'll have the entire offseason to to work together. They'll have spring ball. They'll have an entire fall camp. They'll have they'll have an upgraded roster. They'll have new talent, new players. They'll have guys that had big roles this year that are more ready to play bigger roles next year because of the experience and, and production they were able to put up this year. I mean, Jalen Daniels is the most obvious example of that. So uh, the expectations should be big, but you still have to calm them down by saying like. This is still a building process. This is still a a long range, big picture thing. It's not just oh, okay, well he can coach. Now we go to a bowl game. I mean that's just it doesn't happen that way. Um, so th- this has still got to be a two, three, four year process. But um, but but as long as you keep moving forward, I, I think that, that you know everybody will see that good things are ahead and and good things are coming, and and that's going to make people happy. There's no question about it. We're talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Uh, switching gears over to basketball, I hope you had a good time in, in Orlando last week. Um, do you have one thing that sticks out the most that you find to be maybe the biggest worry right now or the biggest question about KU basketball going forward? Yeah, they they got to be able to play defense, man. I mean, this is a team full of offensive talent. They can score in bunches. They can score in transition. They can shoot three-pointers. they got guys that are going to the rim now. I mean, you look at uh, Ochai's doing it. Christian Brown did it phenomenally well in, in Orlando. Um, you know, they've got guys that can put up points and can this team can score. They, they've just got to find a way to – to make defense their priority, they've got to make find a way to to be sound defensively. And and you know, I'm not saying again, I'm not saying anything that people don't know or or aren't expecting to hear. I mean, that's that's still self basketball, and that's how it's always going to be. And and he made it very clear, as did as did Brown and and others. Uh, they made it very clear that they were not at all pleased with the way they played defense down there. Um, e- even in the win over Iona, I mean, they gave up 83 points. You know, and 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 they gave up some really easy baskets and really really easy stretches um to to a team that that you know they should have been able to lock down a little bit more so they play defense in stretches and they're able to kind of flip the switch when they need to and and as self has said they 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 often get off to pretty good starts defensively but um 
it, it, they've got to find a way to understand that that's got to be a 40 minutes a game thing. That can't just be a, you know, here and there thing. And, and, and they've got enough veterans um, that, that have been through the wars and, and, and know what self expects and wants uh, that, that that won't be an issue. I mean, communicating the message will not be an issue. It, it will just be a matter of, um, do they do they buy the message and and how quickly do they do they kind of take that to heart and 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 change the way they play out there and and it's not everybody you know I mean there's 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 guys that are are delivering but but for the most part I mean you know um, I, I think every everybody on that roster could probably take another step forward in in their defensive intensity and effort and and production. Derek and I talked about this yesterday and and we both agreed. Um, and I'm interested to see where you stand. W- would you say that it would be better with Bill Self at the helm? Would you say it's better for for a team to be where it is now in terms of the offense is really humming and the defense is the side of the court that that needs to pick it up, or would you say it's it's better to have it the other way around? Because we both kind of agreed if it has to be one way, this might be the ideal scenario. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I mean. There's nothing harder than taking a team that you need to squeeze the turnip and bleed offensive production out of it. Sometimes it's just not there, and and that is a heck of a lot harder to do than to to convince guys that they've got to step it up defensively and they've got to give better effort and they've got to dig in and and all of those things. I mean, number one, you can do that with with playing time, right? I mean. Okay, you don't want to play, you don't want to defend, you don't want to guard the right way, well, then you won't play. And and that'll get your attention in a hurry. Um, offensively, you, you can't really do that. I mean, you, you obviously have to in some instances, but, um, man, there's just nothing worse than watching a team that struggles to score. So um, I, I think that, yeah, I think that this would probably be the way you would you would rather have it because you believe in the idea that, that you can – teach defense and you can you can you know motivate for effort and things like that so um and and you know it's also not anything that's uncommon i mean this is this is pretty standard stuff for kansas basketball the the defense always looks a little subpar early in the year and self always bashes it and then you know he finds a way to motivate them and they buy in and they understand it a little better and then things click and then they look like one of the best defensive teams in the country even last year's team that happened with and last year's team was okay but but nothing special obviously and 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 they they didn't make any kind of run um but but boy when he tweaked some things in in I don't know when it was exactly but sometime in maybe late January or whatever um you you looked at a team that changed drastically from the team that allowed Texas to come into the field house and score 90 or whatever it was uh, to a team that was all of a sudden locking teams up and, and, and dictating, you know, Hey, you're not going to score on us. And they did that against the national champs in Baylor and in Lawrence. Um, so that's, that's, Par for the course, and it happens all the time around here. And, and I think it'll happen with this team. The the pieces are there, the, the the depth is there, the options are there. There's there's no doubt in my mind that these guys have what they need. Um, they they just have to commit to it a little more and uh, understand it a little better. And and then once they do, I think everything takes off from there. All right, with Matt Tate here, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Matt, before we let you go, one last thing with Adam. Matt, uh, one last thing. Every day for the rest of your life, you have to listen to the same song at least three times. Which song are you picking? 
the same song at least three times. Every day for the rest of your life. Every day for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. All right, so I'm a Beatles fan, and that doesn't really narrow it down because they have three million of the greatest songs of all time, but you can kind of <laughs> just throw a dart then and, and pick one. But I, I do this thing with, with my uh, – well, I used to anyway. I've done this thing with my dad where uh, my dad's a musician. He was in a band my whole life, still is. Um, and, and so we, we, we made lists. We're, we're big list guys and, and, you know, fantasy football lists and dork lists like that. But we made a list one time of the top ten Beatles songs that, you know, and not your favorite and not the best or anything like that, but the criteria for this particular list was the ten Beatles songs that you, every time they come on, turn up as loud as you possibly can and just cannot get enough of listening to it. And so that I feel like that exercise prepared me for this moment in time right now. And I'm not going to give you all 10 because I don't really remember all 10. I know we wrote it down somewhere, but I will give you one and I will stick with it. And, uh, and maybe I'll even challenge myself. Maybe every day for the rest of my life, I will listen <laughs> to this song three times. And, and then when I'm old and gray and you guys call me up and see how I'm doing, I'll say I'm still doing it. So the song is, and I don't know if you want to do a drum roll or not, but the song I will pick for this answer is a song called Hey Bulldog by the Beatles. And I don't know if you guys know it, but if you don't, it is uh, worth a listen. It's, uh, it, it, it's a rocker. It's, uh, it's fun. It's short and sweet. I think the key to this is short and sweet, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to listen to like uh, some eight nine minute ballad. Yeah, you don't want yeah. some like eight minute Billy Joel song, right? Yeah, right. And you're yeah, spending you're an hour a day, then, right? Yeah. So, so I think short and sweet gets you in and out. I mean, hey, Bulldog. I don't know the running time of that off the top of my head, but I'm gonna guess that three times a day is gonna take me no more than nine or ten minutes, and I think that makes it manageable. But it's also one of my favorite songs, and I would never get tired of it i might turn it down on the third or fourth listen i mean you know it, it, it might it might hurt the list idea there but but i don't know I, I, it's a song that goes as high as it can go every time i listen and you're you're in pretty good shape so with a three minute song you can knock that out you can knock that out three times in, in less than half of a workout right oh yeah oh yeah yeah and and you know when you work out zero minutes a day you know you, you can do it in even less time than that good so call. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's a good question though. I like that one. That's fun. Have you have you thrown that at anyone else? No, you're the first I've tested that out on. All right, I like it. I hope I was uh I hope I was a, a a good test subject for you. Well, that was kind of a day in the life of Matt Tate. Matt, ah, I just I wanted to let you, you know <laughs> you never never have I ever I, I don't even know how to phrase this. Don't let me down and you never have. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time, man. I appreciate it, Derek. Honestly, you better go now because we could do that the rest of the day. So <laughs> right. I, I appreciate it. It'll, it'll Matt, I think I think what he's trying to say. I think he was trying to say is he loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll leave with this. Help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. This is RCST. Joined now by a special guest, that would be Ray Bouchard, the head coach of the Kansas volleyball team, en route to their 10th NCAA tournament appearance. Uh, coach, I, I know you have a, a lot of upperclassmen on the team who um, have definitely contributed to the team, but obviously some of the 
you know, key athletes. You look at players who just won Big 12 Players of the Week for you guys last week or, or freshmen or, or sophomores or young players. So what's kind of been the, the challenge as you look throughout this season and, and now navigating to the NCAA tournament of coaching a team that, that does count on so many young players? Yeah, I mean, you have to have a little patience. Um, and certainly uh, we are a youthful team. The uh, the key, uh, some of the keys been like uh, super senior Jenny Mosier, obviously, has added some stability. Uh, Lacey Angelo, Audrey Suter, Sarah Nielsen, some of those players you talk about that have been in the program for a while. We're extremely happy for them and their opportunity. Uh, but I think it's key when you have a very young roster uh, that they get an experience like this early in their career. I think that's when you build some uh, consistent competitiveness uh, throughout your program. So we've got a nice mix of uh, experience that kind of knows how we want to do business and obviously new players that have uh, uh, really contributed a great deal early on. Coach, I'm kind of curious, you know, you've had quite a bit of success at at, at your job and and the kind of 2010 through 2020 was by far the most successful uh, decade in, in the program's history. What would you say is more true when new players come in, when younger players come in, that they they that they feel do you have to kind of bring them down from a sense of entitlement and remind them that they, even though they're part of the program, they weren't on those teams that that did great things or would you say it's more true that those players come in with the sense of like a feeling of obligation and almost pressure uh to to live up to the expectations of the people that came before them yeah that's a really good question and i think you uh in recruiting i think you need to find the latter you need to find kids that want to compete with humility uh because we start a you know we start a, a new season every year and um, there's banners to look at every day they walk into Horace Family Athletic Center. I think we can draw from that and learn from that, but the work still needs to be done, and we kind of need to write our own story, and this group really has effectively done that. They, uh, I think they were hungry to uh, uh, put another banner up there, one that they can uh, uh, say they were directly involved in, and you know we're hopeful that this will start another good run of uh, – of uh, uh, Kansas volleyball uh, performance and teams. But uh, this group has really been one that I think does compete with humility. They do it the right way. Uh, They represent extremely well on and off the floor. And I think they're very deserving of uh, everything that's come their way because they've worked hard and we're looking forward to the postseason opportunity. With with a lot of young players, where you always hear the kind of cliche of once you get to the end of the year, well, they're they're playing like they're sophomores now, or they're playing like they're juniors now. Uh, was there kind of a moment in time where things you feel like started to click for maybe not just the young players, but the overall team as a whole? Like, was there a moment this season when you felt like things started to turn toward heading forward? Yeah, I think we uh, obviously tried to the combinations throughout our pre-conference schedule. Uh, we got off to a great start in conference play uh, with with two five-set wins at Texas Tech, who's an NCAA tournament team. But then as you get into the grind of the Big 12, uh, I think sometime youth hits a wall, too. And uh, I think experience is used to what that grind and uh, what that long-distance race looks like. So I think there was a moment in the middle of Big 12 play where we had to kind of collectively take our – take a breath and get them rested, not only physically, but emotionally and 
and mentally. Uh, and I think once we got that done, uh, after our West Virginia trip, obviously we finished very strong with uh, sweeps of TCU and, and Kansas State, which put us in a really good uh, position for postseason. I was going through your your previous schedules, and uh, the last season that was somewhat similar to this one in terms of record was uh, 2018. And unfortunately, you, you didn't make the tournament that year, but the record was similar. But the difference was that season you kind of ended on on a bit of a cold streak with some losses. This is the complete opposite. You um, you know you're, you're really on a hot streak right now. Anything you know? I know every every season is its own kind of entity so i guess just in general do you notice any one thing or multiple things that might be different between a team that ends a season on on kind of a cold streak versus one that ends on a hot streak yeah that 2018 team i think we squeezed every ounce of uh, opportunity out of that team and uh, you know as a staff we felt like man we got about all we could out of there and you know i think um we ended up being the last first team out which is uh, not a really great prize to win. No, that's, that's <laughs> time to get into the NCAA tournament, but uh, yeah, we did. Uh, I think we felt like all we needed to do down the stretch there is win one of those five set matches, and we played uh, some really good teams. The league was good, um, but this team obviously, I think, uh, caught fire a little bit late. Uh, I think we were. I think we're gaining speed with this team. I think eighteen. We're just trying to hold on. That was a whole different mindset. But, uh, you know, as we as we move into different systems that we're trying or one set of system and different personnel getting more experience, I still think we're gaining speed with this group and we can continue to get better as we move into postseason. Well, and, and being the, the first team out, I, I don't know if, you know, going into the Kansas State game on, on Saturday after you had already beaten them once and when you fall down two sets to none in that game, I, I don't know how you guys felt at that point about your NCAA tournament resume, but was that a conversation at all uh, in the huddle when you fell down 2-0, just the idea that, hey, like this could be it for us. We better come back if we want our best chance of, of uh, punching our ticket. Yeah, I think it was more about in that moment, what can we do technically, uh, sy- systematically to give ourselves a better chance? I think the team, uh, they know, they knew that uh, certainly a sweep over there was going to put us in a really good place. A split was probably going to uh, makes us a little anxious on Selection Sunday. Maybe we get in, maybe we don't. But uh, beyond that, I think, you know, the third place finish in the league, too, is something that they – that was one of their preseason goals, too, top three in the league. And they knew uh, with, a, with a sweep at Kansas State they could, they could do that, too. So, um, you know, it, rather than have them worry about a lot of things that we really can't control – Let's go out there and uh, let's perform a little better. Let's be a little bit better technically. Let's make sure we're assignment correct. Uh, and when we felt that momentum building in third set, then the rest of it took care of itself. All right, so I got to ask because I just for a peek behind the curtains because I texted Derek uh, on Sunday because the the Twitter account of the volleyball program and the Facebook account both both posted uh, information about the selection show. So I know that as a coach, you know, you've got the mindset that nothing's guaranteed and, and you don't trust it till it's there. But did you feel something Sunday that kind of led you to believe that, okay, because I, I said to Derek, they must be feeling pretty confident if they're tweeting information about the selection show. Did you feel kind of confident about your chances going into Sunday that you were going to get some good news Sunday night? We did. We did. Uh, 
Uh, there's an updated RPI that had us at 34. Uh, usually, if you're below 40, uh, that's a pretty good place to be. There's been a few exceptions over the years. Our strength of schedule ended up number 12 in the country, uh, and we were playing in the number one RPI conference in the country. So I just think collectively those we had five five top 50 wins. Um, so I think, and we ended the season, you know, with four straight wins. So a lot of the, I think the the variables, parameters that they that they rely on and look at, I think we checked the box. So uh, I've had a lot of selection Sundays that were very long and anxious. Uh, certainly, it was a long day, but uh, we felt like uh, we'd certainly done enough to feel good about being selected. And you guys face off with Oregon in the first round of the NCAA tournament on Thursday at 4.30. I guess, first of all, uh, playing in Creighton, which is kind of nearby with Omaha, uh, I'm sure that'll help some home fans get up there and and give you guys a little bit of a a home support in that one. Um, What do you think about your guys' draw? What do you think about your opponent in Oregon and and what's ahead in the NCAA tournament? Well, it's good to be in Omaha. Uh, it's It's a bus trip for us, so... Uh, and it is uh, regional enough, I think, for us to be well attended. Now, flip side of that, I think Oregon probably thinks they should be at home hosting. Um, and they've worked through a season where they haven't had their entire roster the majority of the time, but when they have it, um, they're they're in a very good team. So uh, it's a difficult draw, but when you get the NCAA tournament, hey, that's probably the way it's going to be. And if uh, – if we want an easier draw, we need to work our way up into hosting again in the future. So uh, anytime you're not hosting, you're going to go on the road. You're going to play a really good team first round. and We're excited to play Oregon, well-coached. Uh, they do some things offensively that are um, a little bit out of what side we've seen. So the prep will be a little bit different, but it comes down to us uh, competing, doing what we can control on our side of the net, and uh, getting after it. We're talking with Coach Bouchard here on RCST. All right, before we let you go, Coach, uh, Adam usually does a, a little segment here with our guests. It's called One Last Thing with Adam. Adam, take it away. All right, Coach, one last thing. Of the radio play-by-play guys you've had as the KU volleyball <laughs> oh, coach, gosh. who I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna make you I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a pretty easy out here. Who is your favorite of the bald ones? Uh this Dravetta guy was huge. How about he him, was, uh, huh? He was big time. He uh he would tell it like it is, uh, even when he didn't know what he was talking about. Which so. is most of the time, I hear. <laughs> That's uh, I'll uh, I'll let uh, the audience decide on that one. <laughs> there you go. Well, coach, thank you so much for the time, and looking forward to uh, watching you guys play on Thursday against Oregon. Good luck. All right, thanks, guys. Rock chalk. All right, that was Ray Bouchard, head coach of the KU volleyball team, legend of the KU volleyball team. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017-1320-KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports to talk a little college basketball, college football with us. In about 25 minutes, let's kickstart that college football talk on the other side. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. About 20 till 5, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, go to at RCST1320 if you want to win a uh, Crush Mizzou t-shirt. There's instructions on there. Uh, with Adam Dravetta, Derek Johnson, joined now by Kevin Flaherty 
of 24-7 sports. So, Kevin, the coaching carousel has been a buzz in college football. Who wins a title first, if any? Brian Kelly at LSU, Lincoln Riley at USC, or unnamed coaches at Oklahoma and Notre Dame? Oh, gosh, that's that's (laughs) tough because I think – you know, Oklahoma would have maybe been a solid guess, except that, you know, we've sort of already seen this mass es- exodus, right? Like everybody has uh, has just kind of decided to leave. And so if you were looking at, hey, which coach is going to inherit the best situation, Oklahoma maybe would have been what you would have said would have been the best option up until – Everybody just decided to go. <laughs> and so it now might be the worst situation. You know, Notre Dame obviously is competing for the college football playoff right now. And so you you have to like what's on that roster. Brian Kelly's got, you know, two terrific, I think, recruiting classes lined up. And so when you, when you look at that, it, it might be Notre Dame. I'm not a huge fan. I know some people are of the Brian Kelly to LSU fit. And so I think that's a little bit of my hesitation there. But if you were to ask me, hey, not who's going to win the national title first, but who's going to have the most success over the next six or seven years, I think Lincoln Riley could set up a potential, you know, another run at USC, like what we saw with Pete Carroll in in the mid-2000s, where USC is in that national title hunt year in and year out, and with the Pac-12 being fairly open, as as we all know it is, if he can get that local talent to stay at home, it's a little bit different answer to your question, but I think Riley may be set up for the most success. Do you have a favorite coaching hire of maybe like not one of the headliners? You know, maybe one of the guys who got plucked from a smaller school like a Billy Napier to Florida or something like that? You know, I do like Billy Napier to, to Florida a lot. You know, I this year Louisiana's only loss was was at a place that Kansas wound up getting a win. Uh, it, it was at Texas um, in, in the first week of the season. But, you know, I used to cover Texas, Derek, and did so for four years. And so I still talk to a lot of people down there. And I think one of the major surprises uh, that they kind of talked about after they played Louisiana was the fact that on the hoof, Louisiana didn't look necessarily as different to Texas as, as maybe what you would have expected. You know, he had done a great job of, of not just getting talented guys into his program, but getting guys who had the potential to really develop into, you know, high level players. And, And so I think when you look at, you know, what's in the Florida program already, and I know that, you know, they kind of fell apart down the season, but you look at what's in the program already, you look at the way that he recruits, uh, I really do think that he's somebody that has a chance, and you look at where Florida State and Miami are, too, because obviously they're all kind of on a, on a weighted system where if one goes up, the others go down. I do think that Napier has a, has a chance to have a lot of success there and and really looks like a good fit. And LSU, you know, before they decided to, to shell out all that money for, for Brian Kelly, I, I think Napier was probably on their short list as well. And so when you look at that hire and to get it done as quickly as they did, 
Um, I'm also a big fan of the Joey McGuire hire at, at Texas Tech. I think that you can have a lot of success at a school in Texas, like we saw with Art Bryles at Houston, Art Bryles at Baylor, uh, if you can connect with Texas high school coaches. And I believe that that's where his primary strength lies. He's a, he's a good football coach, don't get me wrong, but I think that a lot like you saw high school coaches being sort of eager to to send their players to play for Bryles, and they had that sort of feeling where, you know, hey, this guy is one of us. You know, if he understands us. You know, he knows our kids, et cetera. Uh, I think McGuire could could have Texas Tech in, in a pretty good spot, especially with the changes that we expect to see in the Big 12. Now, the best hire overall, you know, if, if all of a sudden they announce Notre Dame lands Luke Fickle, I mean, I – I have a hard time seeing a hire that's a better fit than that, potentially Riley at USC. But I do think that uh, th- that has a chance to be, you know, just an incredible marriage of, of coach and school there if they wind up getting that done. Do you buy into the belief, because there's kind of this belief that because of their stringent um, academic standards that some of the public universities maybe don't have, do you buy, buy into the belief that it, it's um, next to impossible to win a national title at Notre Dame? Or maybe not impossible, but but just the, the it's it's much more attainable at a public university than it is in a place like Notre Dame? Sure. And the funny thing about it is, I, I guess maybe not like ha-ha funny, but the interesting thing about it is that that's the exact reason why Notre Dame was so strong through the 50s and, and 60s and things like that. You know, parochial schools were at a high. You had, you know, all these power Catholic schools throughout the Midwest, you know, that were producing kids that, you know, I'm not sure their parents gave them any choice but to go to Notre Dame. And so you look at how the strength lined up with those guys with Moeller and all those different schools at that point, and you kind of look at, at the fact that parochial schools maybe aren't as strong now, it's not as much of a thing. I think that it's not as big of a of a field to pull from with Notre Dame. And there are certainly some guys that, you know, maybe can go play at an SEC school that you can't get into Notre Dame. Or maybe you don't feel like they have a chance to succeed at Notre Dame even. And so... I do think that it's a more limited pool. I do think that there are more challenges there. But I think that when you look at, at what they've been able to lure in, both in this class and what they have lined up for next year, you know, Brian Kelly sort of all of a sudden, he's never recruited badly, but he was recruiting at an elite level at, at Notre Dame. And when you look at the way that Fickle recruits and if they're able to keep Marcus Freeman there with him, you know, and have the both of them there. I, you know, I, I think that Notre Dame is going to continue to recruit at a national title level like they are right now. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of Twenty Four Seven Sports here. We were before you came on going through some kind of crazy scenarios for what would happen in the college football playoff. Um, uh, we agreed that Georgia's in no matter what, and then you kind of have. Uh, with Michigan, Alabama, Cincinnati, Oklahoma State, I think the most intrigue there, Notre Dame's just kind of sitting tight. We'll see what happens with you know, a school like Ohio State where they're sitting tonight with, with the two losses. But uh, let's say hypothetically that Georgia beats Alabama and then two of three lose between Michigan, Cincinnati, and Oklahoma State. So two of those three lose. It can be any two of three. 
at that point, I would think there is a guarantee that a two-loss team would be in the playoff. So how much of a chance do you think if Baylor was one of those teams to beat Oklahoma State and they had two losses, do you think the Bears would have of being that first two-loss team in the playoff? I just don't see it. You know, I think that, you know, if there is going to be a two-loss team, it's going to be somebody like an Alabama. Um, I think that even even with the losses that you're talking about, I think that a lot of people just didn't see Baylor as being one of the Big 12's top two teams. Now, obviously, they finished there, you know, and wound up making it to the Big 12 championship game. And I'm not saying that they aren't deserving of that, but you notice that, you know, the Bears had to wait and see what happened with Bedlam, you know, to, to see if Oklahoma was going to get in along with, with Oklahoma State. And so as much as, uh, as kind of fun as that would be for a Big 12 school to, to slip in with two losses, you know, I, I think it's maybe a little bit hard to uh, to see that scenario playing out in, in the Bears' favor. I kind of think that, you know, even if Georgia, you know, were to go ahead and win that game and Alabama has two losses and, and those other teams lose and Baylor has two losses, I think you're going to see Alabama sort of get that uh, – Get, get that step before Baylor does. Well, it's interesting because if, if Baylor were to win the Big 12 championship and Alabama were to lose to Georgia, Baylor at that point would have three wins over current top 15 teams. Alabama would have one. And I, I, I would imagine if you're rooting for, you know, playoff expansion, you almost need to sacrifice a year where you feel like, because that would definitely stir the conversation, right? If, if a two-loss Power Five champ didn't get in over a two-loss non-Power Five champ, well, and I, I think the the part you aren't even mentioning, or the part that you just mentioned at the very end of there, and was kind of subtle, I should say, is the is the one thing that could help Baylor in that discussion is the committee has tended to go really heavily with conference champions. It, it's been a huge deal. It's part of the reason. Some people think that, that Notre Dame, you know, before expansion at least, was maybe headed to a point where Notre Dame wasn't going to be able to be independent anymore. Because if there's a one-loss team there that's a conference champion, and Notre Dame is also sitting there with one loss but doesn't have a conference, the committee has generally tempted, you know, been tempted to go with the conference champion. And they've said that that's one of their more important criteria. Having said that, the biggest thing that they've always talked about, and conference championships may be the second biggest thing, has been finding the four best teams. And I think that when you look at what Baylor's done, when you look at the wins, that would be something that, of course, would seem to favor Baylor. But I think that the eye test that they would bring out would say, well, Alabama's played a tougher schedule. You know they they've been in these different situations, and you know they're they're maybe better on a on a football field, and that might not be fair because you know outside of you know a late rescue and a meltdown and all of those different things, Alabama would have lost in the Iron Bowl last week, and so I, I do think that there's a, a very real argument for Baylor there. I just have a hard time seeing the committee looking at, you know, Alabama next to one name and Baylor next to the other and saying, you know what, 
with both of these guys having two losses, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and, and put Baylor in. Okay, what is what do you think the craziest scenario? Like, what do you think the deepest team on the list that can make it to the playoff is? Like, hypothetically, if Iowa beat Michigan, if Georgia beat Alabama, Baylor beats Oklahoma State, Houston beats Cincinnati, just all out chaos occurs. What do you think goes on then? Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really have have no idea. I mean, there you know the the different things that you clicked off. I pretty much lost the second you said them because there were <laughs> there were so many, and so it, no, it's well here I can I can know, summarize there, it we, for who you'd be. Probably, we probably go say about seven deep. I would yeah. say six or seven teams deep where you enter this weekend with a legitimate chance. Um, I, I do. You know, I, I do think that the other thing that that'll be interesting is, you know, how far does Ohio State drop after that after that Michigan loss? Because I mean, that's that's a pretty good loss from a quality standpoint, but at the same time, you know, how far do you drop somebody? The the committee, and I know I'm jumping around here, but you look at that Michigan Michigan State game for an example. And the committee basically said, we don't care what happened on the field. We think Michigan's better. And so I'm not saying that you watched that game and came away feeling like Ohio State wasn't as good, but I also could see a scenario where maybe Ohio State's ranked a little higher in tonight's rankings than maybe we would have thought because they say, hey, you lost to a pretty good team you know, on the road, it, we're going to go ahead and say that you're still one of the better teams in the country. And so what happens if Ohio State is sitting there at six or seven as all this chaos is going on? And so I, I do think that there's a, there's maybe a scenario where, where Baylor could slip in. Maybe you, maybe you could go six or seven teams deep depending on whether there's carnage this weekend. But at the same time, I, I tend to think things will probably work out fairly well, as much as we love these doomsday scenarios. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it won't all happen this way, but I do love the possible scenario of a two-loss Iowa Big Ten champ, a two-loss Michigan, a two-loss Ohio State, and you have to basically just say, well, which one do we think is best? Because I have no idea, you know? Um, uh, but beyond that, I think uh, – I don't know. Like, how many of these teams do you think could actually win the national championship? If we were to narrow it down to that, forget the the playoff conversation. How many teams do you think can actually hoist that trophy at the end of the year? I think it's relatively small. I think that as much as I love Cincinnati, and I think Cincinnati's a a deserving college play college football playoff team, I don't know that Cincinnati is a team that having watched them, I would trust to win two games against that level of competition. And the thing that, that people don't think about or realize too, Derek is you get such a huge gap of days between, you know, the, the games between, you know, the end of the season, the semifinal game, then you get another gap. And then there's the, the championship game. And the reason I say that is if you threw Georgia and Cincinnati out there and had them play in week five, just in the middle of the season, they both played a game the week before, et cetera. Cincinnati might beat Georgia. I don't think people realize that Cincinnati is good enough to, to win in that situation. 
But you give Georgia an entire month to plan, you know, to game plan, to see everything that Cincinnati did over, you know, over the course of the year and all of those different things. And you give, you know, what is it, like a 10-day gap or something like that between Mm -hmm. the semifinal and the title game. You know, it it gives more time for the talented teams to, to kind of break you down. And so I don't think Cincinnati can win it. Michigan's so good up front on both sides of the ball that even though Michigan lost to Michigan State, I think there's at least a puncher's chance there. Georgia's obviously the favorite. With the way Alabama throws the ball, Alabama is maybe never really out of it. And so I would say those are maybe the three that jump out to me at this point. I I like Oklahoma State a lot. I'm just not 100% sure that the Cowboys – I'm not sure this is one of Mike Gundy's more talented teams. They're incredibly well coached. They're really disciplined on defense. They can rush the passer. They can do a lot of positive things. But I think that once you get them into a setting against a Georgia or or an Alabama or somebody like that, or or even potentially a Michigan that's going to be able to match her or exceed them up front, you know, I, I think that maybe they lose a little bit of that advantage that they've played through this year. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work with 24-7 Sports. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is RCST. Coming up at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we are going to go over our KU football exit interview, kind of recapping the season that was for KU and and what to look ahead for. This is RCST on KLWN, KLWN.com. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 on the AM dial, KLWN and KLWN.com. I'm Derek Johnson. Along with me is Adam Dravetta. Of course, you can check out our best of RCST podcast. Give us a follow at RCST 1320. We're doing a t-shirt giveaway. Uh, You can find the instructions uh, over there. So KU football season coming to a close. They go 2-10, and but a lot of momentum at the end of the year. And I wanted to do a KU football exit interview, right? Sometimes you take a new job somewhere or whatever, and you do an exit interview with the bosses. Now, this will be a little bit like that, but I want to split it up into three different categories. What went right for KU this season? What went wrong for KU this season? And what kind of just remains to be seen? Um, Let's start out with the positives. What went right for KU this season? I mean, I think the first thing would just have to be you have Lance Leipold, right? You got Lance Leipold for the season, and who knows if if you didn't, um, as unfortunate as everything that went down was and that the timing was in terms of not having spring practice, the fact that you were able to be the only Power 5 school with a coaching opportunity then, I'm sure played pretty well as opposed to having to be in this competition right now for a head coach. What we're seeing right now, and Lance Leipold was not going to be able, he was not going to land a job like Oklahoma, and he was not going to land a job like uh, Notre Dame or USC or, or LSU, but the the, the trickle-down effect is real in, in other jobs that open up as a result of all this. Um, and what you're seeing right now is exactly why anybody who said back in the spring, KU should just let Emmett Jones... Uh, be the guy and just hire a guy after the season, why that was 
while there was merit to it, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to people who made that argument. I understood where they were coming from because you, you had a chance to get a, another full season of a litmus test of, of other um, coaches. So I understood the, the logic behind the argument, but I disagreed with it very much because right now, you know, when KU hired Lance Leipold, they were competing against nobody for Lance Leipold services. Uh, right now they would be competing against a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a huge one. And um, I don't know what your next one on the list is, Derek, but I would add uh, they and uh, they won more, and, and this isn't the end-all, be-all, and I understand it's just two games, but they won more than the Vegas prognosticators expected them to win. And I think you got to start, you know, you have to start somewhere, and, and it's a good place to start when you outpace um, – expectations of the wage makers yeah that's a good i think that's a good uh, litmus test yeah that was another one on the list so we'll just get to that one now i mean from a wins and loss perspective winning even one big 12 game was maybe more than some were expecting um you don't lose to an fcs school which sounds like a small feat but for this program that lost three times fcs schools in the past decade that's not always been the case and overall you were competitive in about half your games and really toward the end of the year there which all that would be considered a success and, and on the FCS topic, and you know, it's worth noting that it has been, you know, KU, and rightly so, uh, caught a lot of flack in 2010, Turner Gill's first game, when they lost to North Dakota State in an awful game. It was 6-3 to three was the final. Um, and KU rightly caught a lot of flack for that. But it's become, it's not the norm by any means, um, but it's become a little more uh, common, I guess, for FBS teams, Power 5 teams even, to get scared or even to lose to FCS teams. So it, it isn't just, you know, it isn't just a KU thing. There are a lot of, you know, Power 5 teams who get scared by um, by FCS schools. And look, this isn't, I know David Beatty, um, he got an FCS win over Rhode Island, wasn't it? This it was is, like. They were terrible. The, yeah. Um, this, I mean, look, South Dakota is not what North Dakota State was when they were winning five or six national titles. No, they had a good row, year. They ended up they number 17 a, in yeah, the rankings. They, and they beat South Dakota State on a really exciting Hail Mary, by the way. But the point is, they, you know, it matters. And, and I get, you know, the ideal scenario is um, we're not talking about, oh, hey, great, they beat the FCS team in the future, even hopefully as soon as next year. But soon enough, hopefully, we're saying, okay, you know, they're playing their third string by the fourth quarter of the game against the FCS opponent. That's what you want, uh, but you have to start where you are. Um, you know, you can't be a success. You can't have a successful 2022 season in 2021. You can only have a successful 21 season in, in 21. And um, and part of that included having to come back and, and have a game-winning drive um, against the FCS opponent. Uh, the other part of this that would be a success, you, as an offense, showed a lot of high flashes. Now, I, I could encompass a lot of things here. The offensive line improved as the season went on, and at different times, different guys showed different flashes. Devin Neal was really a rock throughout the entire year after really the, I don't know, first game of the season for you that he was great. And then the quarterbacks and receivers, we just saw flashes really all season long. Uh, Jalen Daniels, uh, two of the three games were great from him. Jason Bean, we saw flashes at times of him looking like a really good Big 12 quarterback. Receivers, 
LJ Arnold early in the season, Trevor Wilson early in the season, Kwame Lasseter, Luke Grimm late in the season. You saw a ton of flashes from all those guys. And, and furthermore, for Jalen Daniels breaking out at the end of the season, that's a positive. And overall, as an offense, you averaged 20.8 points per game. That was a five-point improvement from a season ago. It wasn't always pretty. It didn't always end with consistency. But at the end of the day, I think you saw enough there that that would go in the what went right column. Yeah, um, and I would say the, the the consistency is the biggest thing. Even in even in some of their losses, uh, there were losses where their offense looked really bad. And and but once um, once Jalen Daniels came along, there's so you know they added so much consistency. And Lance Leipold kind of called a shot a little bit. He he was not quiet about the fact that his particular blocking system is not easy to learn um, right away, and so you know I said, and I'm sure people are sick of me hearing sick of hearing me say it, but I said a lot. You know you can't you can't you don't build strength in the season. You build strength in the off season, but you can build skill in a season. And the offensive line did not get any bigger. They didn't all of a sudden start averaging. 300 pounds across the board uh, between uh, September and, and November, uh, but they did get better, and I think that was because they have not just a really good head coach teaching them, but a really good head coach who is capable of teaching his assistants who are therefore um, good at coaching the players themselves. Uh, so it isn't just, you know, I really look forward to seeing what they can do because they improve so much in their technique now, when you've got a chance to sit, spend the spring uh, packing on some beef in the weight room, how much better is that going to get even even more? What else went right this season for KU? Lack of penalties. They were fourth in the country in least penalty yards per game. Aggressiveness on fourth down. They were second in the Big 12 in fourth down attempts. They were tied 18th in the country. Uh, they did just finish 119th in fourth down percentage, so that would go in the what went wrong category. The execution needs to be better, but the process was correct, and that was very nice to see, along with just basically, I guess, the, the theme of these two things is adding ways for you to win games that aren't necessarily, you know, just about how good of an athlete you have. Um, I've not, I haven't said this on air before, but something that I've said a lot that I'm sure you're sick of hear, hearing me say, Derek, is in college football, this is the Bill Snyder philosophy. When Mark Mangino was at Kansas, this was his philosophy. Um, they never said it exactly like this, but the way I word it is in college football, um, avoiding penalties and stupid turnovers gets you four to six wins a season. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't for this team because they don't have that much talent, uh, but I think in the long run as the talent grows – if they can maintain that sort of uh, composure and that level of discipline, I think s avoiding beating yourself with penalties and stupid turnovers um, buys you at least four wins in college football because you're probably going to play at least four teams that do hurt themselves with stupid penalties. 100%. And then the last thing I have for what went right, just local kids becoming – I guess, like beacons of hope for what in-state recruiting could become for KU. Uh, how good Devin Neal has been, I would imagine that helps you in your own backyard in Lawrence when we've seen so many kids from Lawrence go to Kansas State. And with Jared Casey getting some of those Western Kansas kids as preferred walk-ons and, and having this feel like, like what Lance Leipold is trying to do, saying we play for Kansas, right? Trying to get the local kids to come in and instill the 
pride of playing for your local home university, I think that would be the final uh, big positive that I would say happened this year. Yeah, and I think uh, you're, they're carrying a little more clout now. Mm-hmm. I think there was a time, um, and rightly so, where if, if a kid, particularly, you know, if a kid said, well, K-State and KU were both looking at me as a preferred walk-on, a lot of them would have just said without a second thought, no, I'm going to K-State. And look, man, it's because they regularly go to bowl games, and KU hasn't been to a bowl game since 2008. Uh, but I think you're seeing, um, a, I don't know if the tide's going to turn to the point that it'll ever get to the point where KU has 51 Kansas players and K-State has 19, as is the can- the, the current situation with K-State and KU right now. Um, but I think you're, you're starting to see uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, players looking at it and going, you know what, they're actually, um, it means something to play for KU now. It, it isn't just um, my last desperate heave at playing Big 12 football. It's it's a real program and an opportunity to play for, um, you know, play in December. So what went wrong? I, I think we would start out with the defense. It just struggled all season long. You did have a couple games at the end there where you only, I say only give up 31 and 34. Those were your two best outputs in Big 12 play to TCU and West Virginia. And certainly there were, I don't want to make this say like there weren't any positives, right? Like Rich Miller coming in doing what he did. That was a positive. Kenny Logan was a positive. Uh, Some nice plays and flashes from Jacoby Bryant, Kyron Johnson. Like some of these things are very much positives and there were nice plays had at certain times. But overall, the defense as a unit just wasn't good enough and, and that has to get better moving forward. So that was one thing that I think would be at the top of the list for me of what went wrong. More talent or more scheme? What do you think? I, I think it's probably talent. Um, I actually kind of like the idea of what Brian Borland's trying to do, which is more kind of simplify the defense and, you know, basically keep big plays in front of you. It goes back to kind of what Kansas State used to do with Bill Snyder. I guess they still kind of do that now. Keep big plays in front of you. Make them earn the whole field. If they go down and have a 15-play drive, then good, they earned it, right? Um, and I think that's what eventually is going to instill. It just is going to take some time. I think it's less about the athletes and more going to be about getting familiar with the scheme. I don't remember. Maybe a little both. I remember a lot of missed tackles early in the season. Yeah. And those kind of faded away, and we talked after about week three or four. We talked, what does that cause more? Is it caused, you know, you want to avoid, if, if there's a missed tackle because the guy you're trying to tackle is just a way further superior athlete than you, um, that happens. But you don't want missed tackles because you did not understand your assignment. Um, and I think they, they started having fewer, they still had some missed tackles. Um, in fact, there was a run against West Virginia that I'm thinking of that where the kid just bold. It looked like Marshawn Lynch for a second. Um, but it, and not to pick on the KU players, but I think they were just out athleted on that play. Um, if you ask them, maybe they, they could have made a play. But point being, I think there was so much more assignment sound as the play as the this, the year went on. Um, you saw a couple pick sixes that were just beautiful reads by the respective uh, guys who got the the interceptions. Um, so yeah, they you know again if, if you know. If if you're if you have a coaching staff that can teach their system and get guys in the right place, uh, then the next step is to uh, bulk up the talent of the players you currently have, and then add talent uh, via recruiting. And and if you've shown an ability to teach this group of players uh, how to play within your scheme the correct way, 
then certainly you've got the ability to coach better players to do it. Yeah, and given you know 550 yards rushing the last two games, that'll leave a sour taste in your mouth. So that was number one. Um, the other thing for me, running too much on second and third and long. You were so aggressive on fourth downs, uh, but that just happened too much um, for a team that you need to squeeze out all those moments of competitive advantage. Uh, the other things that I think that went wrong, the running back depth, that wasn't necessarily all their fault. You just had a lot of guys get injured. Velton Gardner transfers away. Uh, the offensive line started slowly, but then eventually that can turn into a positive because they finished strong. And then uh, the last thing for me for what went wrong, I mean, still at the end of the day, as much as we view this as a positive swing going forward and as much as Lance Leipold year one was a positive season and, and success story for KU, at the end of the day, I'm sure if you asked Lance Leipold, he would say, well, okay, but we still went 2-10, and 10, and I'm not happy with that. Yeah, we. I'm sure all of us are a lot happier than Lance Leipold is. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Lance Leipold, um, as much as he probably isn't a guy who lives too much in the past, I'm sure he could probably name off a few games right off the top of his head that he says, yeah, but we should have won those. Um, another, I'll add this, there there were some, um, even though the, the, the blowouts kind of, ceased come November it's still along with the fact that they only won two games I would add that there's they did have um look Oklahoma State is playing for a chance to go to the playoff potentially this weekend but they lost 55 to 3 um you lost what 49 to 7 what was it or 54 to 7 against Iowa State mm -hmm. so along with the fact that there were 10 losses a few of them were absolute maulings um again I think we both agree there was more than good than bad um but i do think you know I, I remember look ku in 2005 went to a bowl game and they lost to eventual national champion texas 66 to 16 mm. or 66 to 14 or something down in austin so blowouts happen um against great teams but you want to limit those and i, I don't you know you, in future years look if you get blown out by a team like oklahoma state and they go on to play for a national title okay you cannot get blown out to an Iowa State team that won what seven games, eight games. Right. What was their final record? Yeah, I mean, at the, they went seven and five. Yeah, yeah, you can't get blown out to a team like that. Yeah, everybody thought at the time, oh, maybe they'd go nine and three, but it ended up kind of being that way. Okay, so this leads on to what remains to be seen, and I'm going to kind of rapid fire get through this because we got to take a break here. But um, you know, who's going to transfer into the program? Who's going to transfer out? That remains to be seen, and just recruiting in general, like what is it going to look like with the local kids? How good is it going to be? Are you going to get your system guys? All that just remains to be seen. We don't have the answers to that. Um, is what we saw from Jalen. Daniels at the end of the season was that real or will that be just kind of a small sample size and how much beyond that can he get even better than that can he improve on that again something we'll find out next year um, what else remains to be seen how soon can you make that jump between building momentum to building your program to being competitive to then all of a sudden starting to win games to then all of a sudden threatening for four wins for threatening for a bowl game and kind of in that same notion, how much will actually having spring practices affect development and a full offseason with Matt Gildersleeve, something you alluded to earlier with gaining weight on these guys and, and getting in the right system. Those are all things we're going to talk about throughout the offseason. Those are all things that we might not totally find out until next year, but certainly a very impressive year one for Lance Leipold and his coaching staff. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN with Adam Dravet. I'm Derek Johnson. Depend on it.